While your day is winding down, they're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day, from local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard, to listen, and where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Welcome to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus. Chris will be back tomorrow. Um, but uh, we have a, a guest with us in the studio to start the show. You know, we've been covering the sheriff's race here. Uh, it's the biggest thing going on. Uh, not only the biggest thing going on in Bristol County, but one of the biggest things going on in the country. We've seen a lot of outside money, um, uh, outside expenditures, uh, particularly in support of Faroe. We've seen some pack money from Charlie Baker's pack, uh, you know, being spent um, on behalf of Hodgson. I've I received just today in my mailbox, being a 33 year old super voter who lives in Fairhaven, uh, three mailers on this race. So it's something that we've been paying close attention to here, and it's something New Bedford Light's been paying close attention to as well. And uh, w- with that in mind, we have uh, Arthur Hirsch, who who uh, who started covering this race uh, not too long ago, and I think has has done a pretty good job. Hey, Arthur, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. So. 508-996-0500 is how you can get in the program if you want to ask either of us a question or if you want to make a comment uh, on the election. So you've been covering the race. You've been covering particularly the issues on this race. But first, I want to get some ba- I want. I was hoping you could give a little bit of your background to the audience because I feel like it's important. Uh, you know, it's an important um, piece of information, uh, you know, to talk about your coverage of this race. All right. Well, it, um, I happened to be starting working at the New Bedford Light in the middle of September. I had actually moved back to New England. I had worked, uh, tell me when this is too much information. I had worked for the New Bedford Standard Times in the 1980s. Uh, left when it was a real paper. Uh, that, that <laughs> yes. Uh, and um, moved, uh, left uh, Massachusetts and moved to Maryland to work yeah. for the Baltimore Sun. Right. In 1990 and worked for the Baltimore Sun for uh, 25 years and then did some other, did some teaching, uh, worked for Johns Hopkins University in media relations. And then um, it's uh, decided I wanted to move back to New England, Sure, uh, fell in love with this area and so moved to uh, Providence, Rhode Island. But I'd gotten uh, connected through a uh, mutual uh, work acquaintance with uh, the founding editor of the New Bedford Light, okay. uh, Barbara Rossner. Sure. She worked with someone at the Hartford Current with whom I worked with at the Baltimore Sun. Okay. And so we started, we uh, had a conversation in the middle of September, and uh, next thing I knew, uh, the semi-retirement plan was postponed at the very least. Okay. And uh, she wanted someone to work full-time covering the sheriff's race, so which I started on on September 15th. So I think that's important because you've been in you've been in Baltimore for the last uh, quarter century. So you don't you didn't have any idea who Tom Hodgson or Paul Hero were just until a few months ago. I had not heard the name before. Well, when I started looking at the coverage, when I knew I was going to talk with uh, Barbara, of course I look at the website. Let me get an idea what they do. 
Yeah. So I go into that conversation with some idea what I'm talking about or sure. what they do. And that's the first time I saw the name either Tom Hodgson or Paul Harrow. It's I had missed somehow a lot of Hodgson's signature moments with uh, when he was at the White House um, and photographed with uh, President, former President Trump. Sure. And some of the other moments he had where he made, you know, national and international headlines yeah. with some of those things. But all of this was new to me when I started on September 15th. So we're speaking with Ar uh, Arthur Hirsch of the New Bedford Light. He's been covering the Sher uh, Bristol County Sheriff's uh, election. Yeah, so uh, it's just, I thought, I think starkly different from a lot of us who are covering this who have just kind of been around for a while and are, are very at least familiar with uh, Sheriff Hodgson and now just getting more familiar with Mayor Harrell as he's in the northern part of Bristol County, which, you know is live might as well be france uh, in some aspects so uh you wrote so i want to talk about you've been covering the issues in this race and they're like you know basically you know the 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 dominant themes of the race uh first of all everybody's just getting to learn the word recidivism uh and uh everybody's uh you know learning about the you know the immigration role of the sheriff if any and the suicide rates in in prisons but i want to start with the with the profiles that that just came out today i i read them before we went on today uh in the new bedford light and uh they're on both candidates hodgson and hero and what i thought was interesting is you um you uh phrased it as the charmer versus the technocrat the charmer being sheriff hodgson the technocrat being mayor hero so why did you choose that that characterization uh, of the race and of these candidates well well those were headline writers i didn't write oh okay uh the word technocrat is in that word is in uh a variation of that word is in the hero profile. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I think I, the technocratic, I think there's the word technocratic. I'm looking at the copy now uh, to refer to Hero's uh, the way he presents yeah. or the way he presents his argument, the technocratic argument. The word charmer is not in the Hodgson uh, profile, but it's a fair extrapolation from it definitely the copy. is uh, yeah. that's a perfectly fair word to use because he so. certainly is a very engaging very gregarious um person mm -hmm. in person uh he's very persuasive yeah uh and all of that you know works very well um for anyone doing you know who is in public life those skills or those characteristics would would work very nicely so we're speaking with Arthur Hirsch in the New Bedford Light. He's been covering uh, the Bristol County Sheriff's Race. Uh, if you want to give us a call, you can at 508-996-0500. That's how you can get on the program. So um, I, you you talk about uh, – well, the technocrat thing I think is interesting because that's, that's basically what I said of Mayor Haro when we had him on for two hours. We kind of asked him some of the questions like about what you're going to do different and – some of the things that we thought he might do different as uh, being an opponent of Hodgson weren't necessarily true. Like he wasn't, he wasn't in favor of necessarily abolishing the Ash Street Jail, and he wasn't in fa He wasn't. And I asked him, "Are you going to, are you going to uh, refuse an ICE contract if you get if you get one offered mm -hmm. to you by the federal government?" He said, "I'm not sure. You know, mm -hmm. I'd have to I'd have to see what it's about first. So I, I mean, I guess that a lot of that comes from managing municipal government." Right. And how, uh, 
you know, there isn't really a party delineation on the ballot uh, because a lot of the issues in managing a municipal government isn't partisan. Right. And I mean, Hodgson comes from that same uh, from that same mold. But yeah. so um, so you you um, I, what I think is interesting is there's an anecdote that Sheriff you talk about the anecdote Sheriff Hodgson shares and they're all very good. Uh mm. Uh, all of these that you've named, um, he has said these uh, to me here mm-hmm. uh, over this microphone, and uh, they're very good. The um, the the one that I really want to focus in on is the one on the um, immigration law. Mm-hmm. So just for some background, there was this immigration law that was passed in 1996 with the Newt Gingrich Congress and Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton uh, presidency. It was called the uh, IRA-IRA Act. And it uh, made, uh, I think, uh, immigration laws, some would say, me in particular would say, uh, significantly more draconian. And so uh, he tells a story about how uh, in 2004, he was trying to work with um, uh, Congressman Hyde uh, of Illinois and Barney Frank, who was our congressman at the time, um, on getting some actually some more lenient immigration laws passed or repealing some of the more stringent parts of IRA IRA. He said this two th- he said he didn't get it done because someone told him John Kerry told him it was 2004 and it was an election year so it would never get done. But but Congressman Frank actually gives a different version of those uh, a different version of of of, uh, of what happened. Can you Correct. tell us about that? Yeah, um, Congressman um, Frank's version uh, and his recollection of I spoke with him a little over a week ago his recollection seemed very good uh, sheriff Hodgson's has some of it yeah right I mean I think his basic point that he was willing to huddle with and cooperate with a, not only a Democrat but a fairly liberal Democrat in Barney Frank we would all agree sure uh, his that that basic point is appears to be correct. Yeah. Based on what uh, Congressman Frank had said, uh, Congressman Frank's recollection is that uh, the law that was passed in '96 that took effect in '97, yeah, all of it went through the the full vetting process as Congressman Frank described it. At the eleventh hour, a uh, anti-immigrant Texas congressman, last name Smith, don't remember the first name, inserted into the bill. This provision that allowed the government to deport people who were non-citizens but still legal residents, say somebody who has a green card, some of these people could be in the country who knows how long, Mm -hmm. 10 years, 15 years, who knows, but living legally in the country, just not citizens, and they were then subject to deportation on the basis of a criminal record could be a DUI 10 years ago. Next thing you know, you're being deported to a country you barely know. Now, as in Frank's account of how this all came together, that piece of the bill came in at the 11th hour, and it didn't go through the full vetting process. It was voted on, it was, and it was voted on by the House and Senate in 96. It was mm-hmm. a bipartisan vote. So it takes, the bill takes effect in 97, which is right around the time, takes effect in April of 97. Sheriff Hodgson takes office in the summer of 97. I believe yep. it was July. Yeah. It takes a couple of years before the effects of that law start to become quite apparent in the community. Right. Particularly the Azorian community. A lot of people being deported now for offenses that really could be 
fairly minimal. Yeah. We're not talking about violent gang members. And Hodgson was very concerned about that, concerned about the chaos it was causing, the havoc it was causing, and so on. And Frank and Henry Hyde wanted to see what they could do to get that piece of this bill, which otherwise was not that way, yeah. was not, it was meant to crack down on illegal immigration. That was Bill Clinton's broad statement about it, but it did not have, but it, I, as, as Frank describes it, it was not otherwise so harsh. So that Hodgson became involved because he was the sheriff and he's involved with um, enforcing the law, <clears throat> or at least uh, at that point they, they were, there was some immigrant detention going on, uh, in their facilities, not the way it was once they opened the uh, yeah uh, the center. Sure. Uh, later, but um, well, well, it was pre it was pre nine eleven, so that's right. DHS hadn't even been invented uh, yet. That's right, exactly. Yeah. And um, Frank says that Hodgson uh, was very effective uh, because they knew he was a you know conservative Republican, and they thought he could be a very effective yeah. advocate for this change. Sure, and. As Frank uh, put it in the, in the story, the quote is that um, he did a good job trying to persuade them, <clears throat> excuse me, this is too harsh. We were making progress. But it took a while, and it took long enough to get to September 11th of 2001. And once the terrorist attacks took place, by Frank's recollection, that was the end of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the, the bill never came to a House vote. It never came to a vote. Mm -hmm. Once 9-11 happened, that was the end of it. So uh, in his account, the timing is, you know, that makes sense. And it never came to a vote, but that Hodgson's help with it. At that point, he also said, which might be surprising to people, uh, Frank said, then he was very pro-immigrant, close quote, mm -hmm. Frank says. <clears throat> and then I asked, well, what, what do you think happened then? He said, I, uh, what do you think happened since then? I don't know, Frank said. Uh... I think that uh, Sheriff Hodgson would say, was I didn't get a chance to ask him about this after I spoke with uh, Barney Frank. Sure. But I think he would say there's no inconsistency based on his answers on this question. Yeah. His, uh, what he says is that I am not anti-immigrant. I never was. My concern is about the law. That's right. my interest. And if you don't like the law, fix it. Right, and he he says a very similar thing to what the head of the Immigrants Assistance Center uh, has said, which is that both the Democrats and the Republicans are at fault in not confronting this issue. Yeah, there was a bill that came up for a vote in two thousand seven. I thought that may have been the vote, the bill they were talking about. Yeah, the bill under President Bush. That was the big immigration reform bill. Yeah. It that one passed the House, failed in the Senate. Right. Um, and both Hodgson and uh, Helena uh, De Silva Hughes both will say both parties are at fault. On Absolutely, this. neither one of them is willing to face the music. Well, in two thousand and seven, Democrats had massive majorities in both chambers of Congress. Actually, right. they, they had that wave uh, election in the midterms in 06. So, um, and Barack Obama was actually in uh, in in, uh, in the Senate at that right. time. So, um, so that's I think that's an interesting characterization that that Barney Frank said he was decidedly pro-immigrant, and then said I don't know what happened what afterwards, happened, right. saying because I would think the same thing just from talking to him, and you know he I, he does say I'm pro-legal immigration and all of that, mm -hmm. but I, I think at a certain you know my opinion is I think at a certain juncture you've got to understand that the. 
that the system is is you know irreparably broken and to i think be so steadfastly um you know committed to enforcing our dated and obviously cruel immigration laws i think is is i don't think it's good but anyway um so Hero, I want to move on to Hero. So you said, he, you know, you 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 talked uh, about his uh, sort of, da- I think, like, like you said, technocrat, sort of data driven, um, data driven approach, which I guess you'd say differs from that of Sheriff Hodgson's. Um, and um, what sort of, I mean, well, I'm not sure. I think I think. Uh based on some of uh, the sheriff's answers on that, I think you would say uh, he is data-driven. Yeah. He's said that many times. He's he's referred to these various metrics that they have. I think the number he uses that. is 250, he he uses- 250 of various uh, operating, or, or I forget exactly the phrase that he's used, but his point is that we're watching how inmates are doing. We're keeping track of it. Are they publishing it? No. Yeah, there are some uh, sheriff's departments. Uh, I don't know exactly how many. There are some that put out in their annual report on recidivism, specifically related to their right. uh, house of correction. Yeah. I know I spoke with a woman, one of the um, experts on criminology, whom I spoke with for the recidivism story, Natasha Frost at Northeastern University. Yeah, said she's done several studies for a number of counties on mm-hmm. recidivism. So you can get you know, an academic and maybe some good, sharp graduate students to say, you want a project? Here's a project. Yeah. Uh, without having, <clears throat> I mean, it seems conceivable that you could do that without having your own uh, You did staff. say in the column that actually he, he does, he uses the best data, data available when he has it. If not, he's, you know, very, uh, very much able to um, turn a phrase, right, essentially. Yeah. Um, Talked about the time at the courtyard. Uh, he was at the courtyard uh, over here in Fayetteville, just a few miles down the road. Yes. Uh, were so were you there when the 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 mass Dems tracker they caught the mass Dems tracker outside of the courtyard? I the, heard heard about that after. I okay. didn't see any of that happen. Okay. I don't know if that was after he left yeah. uh, because I didn't leave with him. There was another gentleman there, fellow running for Senate. Uh, state Senate, whom I wanted to... Running um, for state... No, I'm sorry, U.S. Senate, who I wanted... Um, no, state Senate, I believe. We don't have any U.S. Senate <clears throat> races <clears throat> right. going on. So, so. Was, uh, state Senate, state whom Senate. I wanted to speak with. Uh, Brown is his last name. Oh, J- Jesse Brown, yes, he's running correct. for Congress. Yes. Yes, right. that's sorry, right. Congress, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I wanted to speak with him after, so he and I talked for 20, 25 minutes after. So I don't know what happened after the sheriff left that restaurant. So um, let's take a break. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, we're here. This is South Coast tonight. We're here with Arthur Hirsch from the New Bedford Light. Marcus, uh, Chris will be back tomorrow, but we're joined in the first hour by <clears throat> Arthur Hirsch of the New Bedford Light. He's been covering the sheriff's race. Uh, well, originally lived in New Bedford, but ha- um, but then went to the Baltimore Sun in the uh, was there for about 25 years, came back here, and he's been co- one of the, I think one of the few members of the media here that's been covering the sheriff's race with a uh, a clean slate. So um, we're we we're talking about the profiles that were um, that you wrote on each of them, and you know the headline writers. I think aptly titled them the charmer versus the technocrat, saying basically, you know, talking about Sheriff Hodgson's. Um, 
you know, excellent retail politics and his, uh, you know, loquaciousness and um, Haru's more, I mean, not that Hodgson isn't data-driven, but Haru's presentation as a more uh, data-driven candidate or um, wonky, let's say. But um, I want to move on to the immigration issues. We touched on this a little bit, you know, you, 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 you spoke with uh, Helena De Silva Hughes, who's a friend of the show, and I think does great work at the Immigrants Assistance Center. But the um, the sheriff's role in immigration. So we talk about the ICE detention facility, which is, I guess, I don't know what it does now. It doesn't detain migrants. No, it does not. <laughs> it's used uh, for um, sometimes training purposes. Okay, but that's all. His immigration activities have been shut down entirely. Right in in uh, in twenty twenty one after the May twenty twenty incident and that's the right. investigation uh, investigative report that came out in December. Uh, we followed that here. I know you have some um, you have some quotes about uh, and it was from uh, an interview that he had on South Coast tonight uh, from WBSM and uh, basically saying uh, you know the sheriff plays a role in immigration because he was charged with uh keeping the county uh keeping the county safe um there one of the criticisms that Hero has brought up in the in the um throughout the race is that he's part of an immigrant advocacy group or immigration policy advocacy group um uh, titled fair which was factually founded by uh, a white supremacist um his what was his response to that uh his response uh was uh two things one was to say that in his experience and i don't know exactly how long sheriff hodgson has been involved with the federation for american immigration reform is the full name of this group sure. founded in 1979 yeah. by a fellow named john tanton mm-hmm. an ophthalmologist from the midwest who has uh, certainly has a history of making a lot of statements suggesting that basically the United States is way better off with a white, is meant to have a white majority. Yes. <clears throat> That's the right way of the yeah. world. And uh, <clears throat> so um, Sheriff Hodgson is listed as a member of the advisory board. Yes. And he answered it in two ways. He said that in his experience, in his uh, contacts with folks from FAIR, any of the activities he's had with the organization, he has not heard anything that would tell him that this is a racist or white supremacist organization. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then he pivot, he just, there was a beat, and then he said, um, answered it in a personal way and said, you know, I was raised as a Christian, that's not the way I was raised. And then he talked about, his uh, having grandchildren who were of uh, one of uh, has a ancestry, I guess. Um, Cape Verdean um, is uh, part Cape Verdean. The yeah. other is part. Uh, uh, I, I know. Uh, I, I know he has so, more than bi- one biracial grandchild. He did right. say it to to mayor her own the debate in response in response to right. a criticism. But um, so you we were talking about. Uh, you know his his sort of stances on immigration and how they change. And I think this is interesting because uh, him and and you mentioned this in the column. Him and Helena De Silva Hughes, who uh, I think are probably more likely than not on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Not to speak for Helena, 
Um, I just, uh, I don't think she agrees with him probably much on immigration now. Mm. Um, but uh, they were both advocates for the immigration law that you talked about under Bush that yes. didn't get passed in 2007. That's right. And she said that his relationship with, um, her relationship with the sheriff at times is cooperative. Yes. Right. So um, is there any, and I guess we can't conjecture, like what changed, right? Do, is anything that changed, has anybody said, like, I don't, you know, has anybody indicated what has changed uh, to make his, I guess, rhetoric or stances a little bit more, uh, I don't know, hard, uh, hardline conservative on, on immigration? I can't say that I've tracked, you would have to sort of do, you would have to do a, I suppose, you know, full tracking of all of his statements on immigration for the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, right. And then look at, is there a pattern? Does it change at some point? When did that happen? And then try to understand what that was about, then talk with him about it. I was not in a position to be able to do that. <laughs> right. So I don't, yeah, I um, so I can't really speak to the question of whether his rhetoric on immigration, this point that he comes back to again and again, which I make reference to, although didn't explore the subject because I realized to really open that up would have taken way too much space. I think it's an interesting point is his point about linking drug traffic and illegal immigration, yeah. specifically fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And he's made that point a number of times in public. Well, he definitely has. Yeah. Um, and the, we've gone up and back on this. It's been sort of an interesting um, button because I was checking this, checking up on this and saw that in late September, the Cato Institute, not known as a bastion of uh, progressive liberal uh, Definitely not. Uh, thinking, put out a report that looked at this question of uh, specifically fentanyl and illegal immigration. And sure. their analysis, which was based on the U.S. Uh, statistics from the U.S. Sentencing Commission, Customs and Border Protection, and the Border Patrol, finds that the vast majority of fentanyl, because that's the drug they were looking at, comes through legal ports of entry. Indeed, is it coming on the, over the southwest border? No question about it. Yeah. But their, uh, their assessment was that 90% of it, based on those statistics, were coming through uh, yeah. legal ports of entry, of which there are hundreds. Yeah. Um, they went a step further and in their analysis and looked at the likelihood of getting caught. And also they, they make the conclusion that it is U.S. citizens who are bringing this stuff in, who are apparently being hired by these uh, transnational criminal organizations to bring this stuff in in private cars, in, you know, cargo trucks that yeah. are bringing in who knows what other kind of merchandise. And mixed into that is this contraband is the narcotics pra practically so. it, that makes more sense than like that steve king vision of the uh, i don't know if you remember the speech that he gave in congress like 10 years ago steve king from iowa mm. uh basically said that you know there are uh people for every one like good immigrant there's 10 uh 10 uh, mules that have the calves the size of cantaloupes and they're basically you know uh putting you know loads of trafficking weight of drugs on their back and and just running it across the border essentially so um it seems to right. make more sense um right. did did you i should i should say that I, I i thought that what their presentation was persuasive uh 
I talked about this with uh, Sheriff Hodgson. We, Hodgson, we went up and back on this a few times. It's mm-hmm. interesting. <clears throat> um, his feeling is that based on the conversations he's had with people in the Border Patrol, he doesn't buy it. He doesn't believe it. He said, they, you know, these folks see what's coming over the over the border. And his question to me was, well, how do you know what you don't know? How do you know what's out there that you're not measuring? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I could also say, well, of course, he doesn't know what he doesn't also doesn't know. Yeah. So um, it, got, it cuts Perfect. both ways. But in his yeah. view, he's persuaded by the uh, conversations he's had with people, the Border Patrol. Sure. And I guess his own uh, visits to the southwest border. It's not clear to me. He said, I've seen what's coming across. He's used that phrase. I'm not sure exactly Strictly what he's Strictly anecdotal. Seen. It is, again, it's anecdotal. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so... Yeah, that's very, also very like, um, like uh, Rumsfeldian. There's things you know that you don't know. Um, (laughs) The known knowns and the unknown knowns. Yes. Yes, it's wonderful. Exactly. Um, So uh, we're actually going to take a break now and uh, we'll be back. 1420 WB. Hi, I'm Marcus. Chris will be back tomorrow, but we're joined by Arthur Hirsch, the New Bedford Light. Uh, Arthur, uh, Arthur Hirsch is a recently retransplanted back here to uh, New Bedford and has been covering the sheriff's race for the last few months. He wrote some profiles on the sheriff's race that you can check out at the newbedfordlight.org. Also covered the main themes, I think, of uh, this race. Uh, immigration, which we just talked about. Um, recidivism, which we will talk about in a minute. But right now, I want to talk about um, uh, suicides in in the uh, Bristol um, County House of Correction. Um, And it's become a big issue because there was a high-profile suicide of Adam Howe, uh, who was... uh, who had been accused of uh, accused of uh, setting his mother on fire on his front lawn, lawn in Truro uh, was transported to um, the Ash Street Jail and then took his own life by uh, asphyxiation. And uh, it brought up a, a larger issue of suicides in the in the uh, in Bristol County uh, in, in the Bristol County House of Correction and has been a, uh, one of the main criticisms Haro's brought against Hodgson in this election. Now he Haro cited you specifically in his debate on WPRI with Tim White and Ted Nisi uh, on TV and said um, basically that uh, the Bristol County House of Correction, from my understanding, has the highest rate of suicide uh, out of any of the county jails in the Commonwealth. Well, if you combine, and I, let me start. I should, uh, I should start by giving a shout out to my colleague at the New Bedford Light, who worked on this story with me. Eleonora Bianchi did some wonderful uh, research. Uh, she was working on this before I arrived on the scene, and sure. uh, really, would, this would not have been doable without uh, Eleonora's uh, good work on the just nailing down some basic uh, and making sure that the uh, basic information was confirmed and uh, some very good research, uh, very good research on that made the story possible. Great. Um, so that said, um, the um, the count would be um, uh, the uh, <clears throat> the count would be uh, 20 uh, uh, 22 uh, Adam, including the, uh, the suicide of uh, of Adam of Adam Howe, yeah. um, and then there was a twenty third also that uh, was not in 
the uh, for a technical reason was not in the sheriff's uh, the Bristol County Sheriff's Office own accounts, but they acknowledged that um, it could be fairly counted as a suicide. Okay. So they had a technical reason for not including it. Why? Uh, it was, was a matter of the death. Did the death take place on the premises? Okay. Or did the person injure themselves on the premises fatally and then they died elsewhere? That yeah. was the twenty. That would that, be a twenty-third. That is definitely a distinction without a difference. So, well, correct. <laughs> and, and their person, to their credit, yeah. the the person I spoke with at the Bristol County Sheriff's Office, the spokesperson, yeah. acknowledged uh, when we talked talked about this. Um, he said that could fairly be considered uh, a suicide. Sure. So uh, there were twenty. Uh, so twenty-three since uh, two thousand six, which um, compared to the next highest, and that is at both the Ashtree Jail. And the and jail and house, the Astry Jail in New Bedford, yeah, and which is almost entirely a pretrial detention facility. Not mm -hmm. entirely, there are something like ten or so inmates Better who sentence, yeah. are serving sentences, right? But they're they uh, they're living at the Astry Jail because they're doing work assignments. You've there. actually pointed this out before. Um, most people that are being held uh, in the Bristol County House of Correction. It's actually true of most people being held in any incarceration facility total in the whole country, but most people being held at the Bristol County House of Correction, 400 and some odd out of 700 and some odd, uh, are in pre-child detention, meaning they haven't been convicted of the thing that they're being held right. for yet. That's right. So um, so you, he said that, um, he's he. I had him on, he talked about- Who is he now? Uh, the sheriff, okay. sorry. Uh, I had the sheriff on. He said that there were, uh, you have to look more broadly into the, you know, what's going on in the community and, and, you know, more people maybe in Bristol County or southeastern Massachusetts or whatever in this area might be prone to suicide because of the conditions here. But you have data that, that shows otherwise, right? Well, the, uh, the sheriff has pointed to the drug problem in Bristol County mm -hmm. and has associated, and certainly... Substance abuse, alcohol, drug abuse, certainly is considered by people who study this stuff as a risk factor for suicide sure. in, a, in an institution. However, the numbers, again, uh, thanks to Eleonora, uh, thanks to her numbers, uh, you can look at the, um, if, if drug overdose deaths is a reasonable metric of how much drug use of all sorts is going on. Sure. It seems a fair, I mean, it seems of it is measurable and it seems a fair idea of, uh, of, yeah. uh, what drug abuse is. I agree. Uh, what she finds is that the, um, the two highest counties in terms of drug overdose deaths, according to the, uh, Department of Public Health, um, between 2010 and 2021, uh, Middlesex County and Essex County. Yeah, uh, both two of the highest. Okay, uh, but those are not the highest uh, in terms of the uh, of suicides in their jail or house of correction. So there really isn't a correlation between if we are going to, uh, you know, if we stipulate, as it were, you're the lawyer, not I. <laughs> if we stipulate that drug overdose death is some sort of reasonable idea about drug abuse generally at large in the community, uh, it does not then correlate with suicides in in jails in those counties right so you have to ask why you know why would it have exactly. to say what does that have to do with it right. um 
Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't seem the the numbers don't seem to um, really support the the comment uh, commentary. Has Hero proposed anything in particular that that, that needs to be strengthened? Uh, you know, in your conversations with him in terms of suicide prevention. Well, in in his view, um, the um, he's talked about uh, training of uh, correctional officers. He's talked about the programs. Now, one thing I'm not really sure. Again, you'd have to. He's 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 put a strong emphasis on the programs that are involved. Sure. Uh, that will that are meant to give inmates in these institutions particularly those serving sentences, the best chance they have once they get out of doing well. Now, it's harder, I think, to parse out how much does a program have to do with, or he's talked about the outlook that then, that then can create in the institution. If inmates feel there aren't programs, they don't have good outlooks for how they're going to do, their uh, sense of hopelessness will be deepened. Mm-hmm. And they're more apt to commit suicide. It's sure. hard to know, really, from based on the fact that all of these, all it twenty-three, see, it, it seems very. Um, that doesn't seem very um, concrete, right? Correct. All twenty-three yeah. of these. It was pretty striking. All twenty-three yeah. of these people who committed suicide since '06 were pretrial detainees. Yeah. None of them were serving sentences. One had right. been at the institution for about twenty months. That right. was the longest. Mr. Ray, again, yes. thank you, Eleonora, for that information. Um, he had been there for almost two years. Yeah. But what programs he was at, that I don't know. I mean, the, the programs are mostly geared, the setup, the structure of programs and vocational programs, counseling, uh, how to get a job, how to write a resume, uh, high school equivalency programs. All of these are set up for people where they know how long they're going to be there. Right. Which only makes sense. Yeah. Some of the programs, particularly the substance abuse programs, are available, as I understand it, for pretrial detainees and people serving sentences. Sure. But if you're running, obviously... If you know how long somebody's going to be here for seven months, okay, now we can set up some sort of a program. We know how long they're going to be here, and we can do this in an organized way. If you don't know how long they're going to be there, at least the argument is from the sheriff's office, it's very hard to do that kind of programming. Right. So it's very hard to know. I mean, without doing some sort of deep analysis of each of these people... Yeah. <laughs> what exactly was the, because some of this has to do with some predisposition they sure. must have had going in, uh, as well as perhaps what their experience was. Uh, it's very hard to know. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. The lawsuits. Yes, I should, I should add that, um, and you can find this on the uh, New Bedford Light uh, website. Uh, there were a couple of things saying, uh, you know, as a cautionary, uh, I mentioned it's hard to know what, what contributes to a suicide. However, if uh, two lawsuits that were filed